0: Transportation, Women Before the Bench, 1600 to 1850. Um, now, originally, when I first started putting this talk together, the book Secret Knowledge hadn't come out. So, sincere apologies to anyone that's read this. You will have met these women already in one of the chapters in the book, um, but I've tried to extend what's in the talk um, to information that I couldn't put in the book. Um, believe the publishers, have a secret X for many, many towns across the country, and there's quite a strict word limits to what you can put in, so um, I had to edit it back quite a lot to fit in with that, so in the talk today, hopefully we'll extend it out into some further sources. The idea really is um, to meet some of the women who came before the courts in Norwich, from the Stuart period all the way up to the Victorian, what they were accused of, what the punishment was, and where they ended up, what the historical record can tell us, and what it can't. So if anybody here wants to go away and look for their own ancestors or people that used to live in their house or their community, perhaps it will give you some ideas of sources to look at. Um, The other reason for the talk happening in March is, of course, International Women's Day. So it does tie in there um, with the women's theme. We are a bit late, uh, based on the dates, um, but it's a good point perhaps to look back at where we've come from and perhaps question perhaps how far we've come and how far there still is to go. Now, historically, men have made up um, a greater proportion of convicted criminals, um, and imprisoned debtors for that matter. Men outnumbered women on the transportation um, boats and in colonies by as many as six to one. So we're less used to thinking about women in the court system in history. Um, if I were to ask some of you perhaps to name um, a well-known criminal um, from Norfolk in the past, you might come up with someone like James Bonfield Rush, William Stewart, somebody like that, mostly men. Perhaps Fanny Billing is one of the few um, notorious women, perhaps, that we might think of. But what about all the others? Um, What about the women who were tried by the Petty Sessions, which was the lowest um, court in Norwich? Everything from blocking your street with a horse to not vaccinating your child, beating out a carpet in the wrong place, throwing a snowball, drinking after hours, all those petty crimes that you could be called up for. Um, and then, of course, the next level, the quarter sessions courts. Lastly, assault, drunk and disorderly. Um, what about those women? There too, a minority of the people um, in the registers are women. Did they get the same treatment as their male counterparts? And what were their outcomes? Now, we can't obviously look at all of the women today, which is why I'm focusing just on four. Um, but this is what got me thinking about this particular subject. I was actually, um, several years ago now, looking up this chap here, Daniel Now The name is not a coincidence. He's my great, great, great grandfather. Um, He was a farmer in Brockdish, around that area, Puller Market, on the border with Suffolk. And he was regularly drunk while in charge of a horse and trap. He was in the paper a lot. um, So he was quite an interesting man to research in that way. But what struck me about this particular article (laughs) is that Daniel at the top there, gets three lines um, about what he'd done. He was drunk in charge of a horse, and he was convicted and fined a pound costs. Right underneath is Belinda Shepherd. Belinda Shepherd is a married woman living at Halston, charged her, her mom with being drunk and riotous at Halston. Now, and what follows is quite a long description of what she was up to. Um, she was found in the thoroughfare in a state of almost madness from drink, done considerable damage to the windows of several tradesmen and was bleeding profusely from <coughs> wounds on her arms and hands. A crowd of people were assembled um, Attracted by the disgraceful conduct of the defendant, who used the most shocking language. Being a strong, big woman, it was with great difficulty that she was conveyed to the station where she continued her horrible language till near midnight. Now, after all that, and my grandfather getting £1 costs, you think she might get a lot more than that. Well, actually, they asked for 10 shillings. So when you consider it that way, was it really so bad as what he was doing? Were they looking at her status and perhaps how much money they thought they might be able to get from her compared to my grandfather? Or was society that much more shocked that it was a woman in this position than a man? And perhaps those are questions to look into further at another time. So that got me thinking. Today, we're going to meet four ladies. Jane Sellers who was in Norwich between 1600, roughly 1631. Anne Goose, who I believe lived 1714 to 1742. And then Caroline Tuck and Sophia Riches, who lived roughly at the same time, 1831, to um, round about the Edwardian era. (coughs) Here is the Guildhall in Norwich. And before we get into that, really, I wanted to just have a a little think about International Women's Day. Um, (coughs) These women had quite a lot in common, we'll find, as we go through. Um, With a view backwards from this year, we've come a long way. I'm able to stand here in front of what's actually become a room entirely full of people. Thank you for that. Um, And I'm here able to speak to you as a married um, mother of two. Um, I stand here having the bonus of the NHS who helped me birth two enormous babies and I survived (laughs) (laughs) to see you all here. Um, My elders have pensions that they can fall back on. I have a safety net in case I lost my job. I have maternity pay. The list goes on. Um, For the record, I think there is some way to go on that. Um, But what I've been able to do and the choices that I've been able to make are very different and perhaps completely unrecognisable to these four women, um, some of whom are not so much um, further back from us. Ultimately in this, um, I would suggest that these women had very few choices. Um, They had a mix of limited choices. They faced poverty and disease that were constants in their life. Um, And at the end of the talk, perhaps you will agree. Perhaps you'll agree that we've come some way. Perhaps you will think, actually there's still several women, perhaps even in Norwich and Norfolk, that still have these limited choices. Um, And perhaps in 100 years, someone else will be standing here um, telling us what the situation is then. Um, So first, we're going to meet Jane Sellers. I can't claim to have uncovered Jane Sellers entirely myself. Um, She appears in at least two other books other than Secret Norwich. But I do think I've got a little bit more of her story than some of Now, she frequently came before the city mayor's court, which was at the Guildhall, um, in the last image there, in the 1620s and the 1630s. Um, There, um, they dealt with Petty and Quarter Sessions, and she appeared at both of those. Firstly, she came before the Petty Sessions quite a lot, and then towards the end of her story, she starts appearing at the Quarter Sessions as well. The population of the city at that time was roughly (coughs) 17,000. It wasn't a particularly stable city in terms of population. Um, We still had plagues. um, Poverty was ever-present, crime was ever-present. And the growth in that population at the time, because it was still quite a lot more than it had been a short period before, brought an increase in troublemakers, um, or so the authorities would have said. Um, Norwich Since 1550 is an absolutely fantastic book that I'm sure many of you have come across. Um, It's edited by Carol Walcliffe, and it's got a chapter in there um, which includes the following. Weekly searches were ordered in Norwich parishes in 1600 to take stock of a string of disorder by characters who troubled both the piece and the purse, most notably inmates or boarders with less than a full year's settled residence. So essentially had a legal right to be in that place. Maids or single women younger than 40 who go to their own hands not marrying, keeping chambers by themselves, pregnant naughty packs seeking to lay their bellies in this city, work-shy paupers wasting their time in bowling alleys and pubs, unlicensed tipplers letting lewd loiterers drink at all hours of the day, landlords lodging idle vagrant people for a few pennies each week, and workmasters putting countryside journeymen to work at sweatshop rates. Patience was running thin. Judging by the size of the mammoth 20 shilling fines, and this is in the 1600s, remember, imposed for sheltering illicit inmates and threats of whipping or a stay in the bridewell were used to tackle these messy situations. Questions were asked about each one of these pests. How many naughty packs were at large? What they be that rented cheap rooms to passing strangers? Answers written down in certificates were dropped off at the guild hall to be processed. Names were collected and suspects were summoned to appear before the mayor's court. And that seems to be what's happening to Jane. She is known as a troublemaker, and therefore they're keeping tabs on her. And it's it's a little bit of a Mickey Mouse. Um, She's coming in, they're letting her go, and they're bringing her back again. At the time, it was the bridewell, which was the favoured form of punishment for people like Jane, Um, originally a place for the poor to work, uh, with women mostly being put to spinning and carding. Um, So here's a little timeline, which we'll just go through, of her early rap sheet, if you like. Uh, These are all the times that we're aware of from the court records that she came before the petty sessions at the Guildhall. And this is between 1623 and 1629, so there are many occasions on there. um, And these were the crimes. Um, Found idling at Trance, whipped and sent to the Bridewell. Found living idly, sent to the Bridewell. Found not being apprenticed as reported, punished and sent to Great Yarmouth, as she seems to have had some history. Discharged from the Bridewell with two days to leave Norwich, so again they're trying to get her out of the city and out of um, the way of the justices and the, the leading men in the city at the time. A vagrant and out of service, committed back to the bridewell until she can find service. Back to the bridewell for living idly, ordered to return to her new master, remaining in the bridewell until then running away from her master, punished at the post, and put to the bridewell. Sent to the bridewell to work until further order. Petty theft and ill rule, whipped at the post. Petty theft and ill rule again, this time punished in the assembly chamber. So, as that will show, she was whipped at the post many times uh, over that six years, as well as being imprisoned at (coughs) least ten times. This is within six years. Um, mostly she was appearing at the Mayor's Court. There's a ring on the side of the guild hall, um, which was reputedly used for tying prisoners to for punishment. Um, it may be that Jane was familiar with it. Now, unfortunately for Jane, that wasn't the end of the story. The court appearances just kept coming, and they took place at the quarter sessions where the more serious crimes um, were considered significantly she was coming into the court even more frequently. So this time, this is in the space of um, 1630 to 1631. Um, so a lot happening in a short space of time. Uh, the first time she appears at quarter sessions, she has um, stolen, uh, allegedly, six pairs of stockings worth eight shillings. Um, the punishment isn't obvious in the records for that one. Then she was punished at the post for lewdness and ill rule. Then she was back in the bride for ill rule. She was then back at the quarter-sessions again for something slightly more serious, having stolen a linen bodice, bodice, rather two shirts, two smocks, worth five shillings in total. She was acquitted that time, but sent to the bridewell for three days, before being returned to her master. Um, only a couple of months later, she was back at the quarter-sessions for a third time, this time stealing less than ten shillings worth of goods again, a smock, an apron, and another bodice. She was branded on this occasion with a hot iron and sent to work at the Bridewell. And only a few days after that she was sent to the Bridewell for begging and two months later discharged and promised again to travel to Great Yarmouth. And then finally on the 12th of December 1631 she appears at the quarter Sessions for a last time, um, goods to the value of less than 12 shillings, uh, which again she's Allegedly stolen, and she was sentenced to death by hanging on this occasion. Um, and it tells us she had no chattels; i.e., she has nothing, she owns nothing. Um, so, all of these things, you can't help but wonder: was she stealing? Because she, they had no other option. Um, what we don't know for certain is exactly what happened to her. So. The fact that she disappears from the records might suggest that the sentence was carried out. Um, It perhaps does suggest that very thing. Uh, But it might suggest that she died waiting for the sentence to be carried out. That wasn't unusual. Um, And looking at the value of those goods um, for which she was sentenced to death, a spending power of 12 shillings, if you use the National Archives currency converter, they suggest it's somewhere in the region of 50 pounds today. there's a sense, I think, here of the courts not knowing what else to do with her. She's come in front of them so many times, and she's been to the bridegroom so many times. She's been whipped so many times. They've, they've almost got to the end of their patience, and they've said, right, that's it, um, we're going to sentence you to hang She was one of those women under 40 um, who were living on their own hands, and we also know she was pregnant at least once um, within that time, which is something else that was raised. Now, that much we can glean from the court records that survive here in Norwich. um, But we also know from the court records that she had a child. The court records state that he or she was sent to the wife of Matthew Grove in St Swithins, the church which is now the Arts Centre, in May 1630. And that happened just days after she stole some stockings. um, And that brought her face to face with the court sessions. On the 4th of August that year, her child was given back to her. It's very possible, looking at the dates, that she was pregnant on at least one occasion when she was whipped at the post uh, in November 1629. And it seems quite possible that her child was fostered out while she was in prison. Although having said that, some women um, were put into the bride world with their children. So there are some things that aren't entirely clear. As we've seen, over the following months after her baby was born, she appeared in front of the magistrates several times, and she was branded after the quarter sessions. Just four days after her branding, her son, we think it's a son based on the record here, which calls him Gaskin. Um, I think it's probably more likely that it was a boy than a girl, because that sounds like it might be a father's surname or it could be another surname from the family. So it's an assumption, um, but it's something that we see quite a lot in the registers. She may very well have been in the Bridewell when her little boy died. and he appears here in the St Benedict's um, burial Register, and that's St Benedict's Church Tower next to it, which of course is still there if you want to go and see it. The rest of the church uh, was bombed in the by decorators. Now, I think it's an 80s housing estate around the outside. Um, so Gaskin lies there somewhere. And it says in the register here, Gaskin, the base of Jane Sellers, and so effectively she was unmarried at the time. There were other Gaskins and Gascoines around the city, and someone with that surname even appears um, in some of the same Mayor's court records. I'm not suggesting there's a link there, um, but certainly there were other people with that surname in the city. What happened to Gaskin um, in order to end his life? We don't know for sure. We do know that there was plague circulating in the city that summer, um, but he was a poor child that had been taken from his mother and was going perhaps in and out of foster care very early in his life. Um, With all these epidemics and other diseases all around him, um, I think it's a fair assumption that he was even more at risk from disease and malnutrition in the circumstances that he was in. Um, The Miles family also appear in the register here, and they also suffered a lot in those days, burying several members of the same family the day before his burial, um, and he was buried on the same day as another child from the Miles family. And their servant Deborah. So that would suggest that there is something here that um, whole families are mm-hmm. coming down with. There was something contagious going around. Um, Incidents with instance of Benedict's at that time. Um, <laughs> not very long after Gascon died, Jane was back at the Bridewell for begging. Um, evidence here, I think, that poverty, crime, and disease went hand in hand. Now, what of Jane? <laughs> Um, She does seem to be missing from further court and parish records after 1631. Um, Something that was drummed into me on my genealogy um, MSC was that absence of evidence doesn't categorically prove evidence of absence. (laughs) around. So it may just be that she wasn't in Norwich anymore or the records that include her have gone. Um, If she was hanged, it's tempting to think that that was at Castle Hill or ditches um, as per her sentence. And then she might have been buried here, at St Michael at Thorn. Um, however, the registers for the church there, too, were destroyed in the bi And I haven't been able to find any other transcripts of um, BT's or uh, Archbishop's transcripts at the time to prove that she's buried there. Um, this church has completely gone. Uh, it is underneath Archie's car park, essentially, mm-hmm. down that way. So perhaps Jane, too, is underneath Archon's car park. Um, Local historian Frank Mears, who I'm sure is known to many of you, um, he believes that she was the last person hung by the quarter sessions here in Norwich. Um, Later, if you were going to be sentenced to death, it would have been done at the Assizes. Um, As I've already alluded to, there are other possibilities. Um, She may have died um, from something else while she was waiting for her sentence. We don't even know how old she would have been. Um, I've looked through <coughs> several registers and um, databases. I haven't found anything that looks to be her baptism. It's not perhaps surprising because we're going back right to the 1600s and not all the records have survived from that time. Um, what is the case is that there are plenty of cellars, as it were, around Norwich and North Norfolk towards Great Yarmouth um, having children, but we don't know exactly how old she was. <coughs> Um, she was probably in her twenties or thirties, would be my guess. Okay. Now, even if Jane didn't die waiting for her sentence, and um, plenty of others certainly did, um, whether they were criminals or debtors, as many as thirty to forty percent of the deaths between sixteen sixty nine and the mid seventeen hundreds. So, quite a, a good stack of time there. Recorded in the verdict of inquest juries records, it's <coughs> quite a mouthful, at the Norfolk Record Office, occurred at the City of Norwich Common Jail. So huge numbers of deaths there um, are recorded. Now, of course, it's the library restaurant on that site. Um, this is a very early photo of Jail or Guildhall Hill, um, depending on your preference, um, but of course, not a 1700s photo, just an early photo. So we'd be looking at in this gap in here. The jail. Now this is um, uh, just one of many, many inquest documents that survived at Norfolk Record Office. You can go and call them up um, and have a look for yourself if you wish to. And they were taken after the death uh, of a, a man or a woman at a city jail, common jail. And this one is for a lady called Anne Goose. Um, and she was a felon convict under sentence of transportation of the age of 28 years or thereabouts, who in 1742 died being afflicted with the smallpox who had about a fortnight since languished. Had she lived to experience her sentence, she would have been transported not to Australia um, but to the American colonies. There are many of these for other women as well. For example, um, Elizabeth Bays, she was only 19 in 1749, who was also taken with a distemper called the smallpox. In 1727, Elizabeth Tennant, so there's a lot of Elizabeths in these records, um, aged 86 or thereabouts, 86, goodness, who was afflicted by the immediate hand of God with a fever and mortification in her leg, of which she languished till she expired. We don't know much about Anne's circumstances either, even though we've come 150 years, perhaps um, further towards where we stand now. Um, we do know she was buried the day after. This uh, her death occurred, and we know she was buried at St John Madden Market. It's possible she was married and had children, but as yet, that's not something I've been able to find out. Uh, there don't seem to be an enormous number of Gooses in the register. Um, however, Goose could well be a variant of Gooch, of which there are hundreds of hundreds across Norfolk. So we now come another century. Uh, into the future, but our past. And transportation to Australia has begun. Um, survival rates in prison were slightly better. The workhouses um, weren't yet built for everyone, although Norwich was a little ahead um, of the 1830s, enormous workhouses that we're quite familiar with. Um, had you been walking down Calgate, this is perhaps a romanticised version of what you might have seen. Um, and this here. That's St James Popport, which is the, the puppet theatre now. By the 1840s, you had been amongst a population of about 62,000, so more than three times as many as in Jane's Day. Almost all of those were still living inside the city walls, um, so everyone's very much on top of each other. Um, local people around that area were weavers, shoemakers, metal workers, brewers and, others, and other labourers. And the Victorians were great record keepers. Um, So this time we've got many more records to start piecing together some of the story about what happened to these women. Um, The Victorians, as I'm sure you know, centralized things like the decennial um, censuses. So in the beginning, just numbers, but later everybody's names, occupations, birthplaces. They brought in um, huge changes to poor law, to electoral districts, all sorts of things. We also have a vast amount of surviving newspapers, particularly in Norwich and Norfolk, who were at the forefront of that um, explosion in local news reporting. And the standardized recording of crime means that there are many more documents specifically um, about um, crime, essentially, um, that we can look at to find out about these women. The Tuck family, so we've got the Tuck family and the richest family. The Tuck family lived at an address of St James's Palace in 1841, which sounds wonderful. Of course, in Norwich it wasn't quite so wonderful. It was one of the poorest areas of the city at that time. The Duke of Norfolk <coughs> had had a row with the mayor and the palace was already being demolished in 1711, um, so by the 1840s. Um, It was very much in disrepair. Part of it later became part of the workhouse buildings, and by 1805 it housed 550 um, city paupers. Um, One of the inspections that was carried out said the following, At the entrance is a most offensive and indecent privy. The paupers ate, drank and slept on their beds, having no other room to live in. The floors from their filth cannot have been swept for a long time, the air extremely fetid and impure. The beds contained two and, very frequently, three persons each, but in one there was a family of seven. The workhouse was in use until the new one on Beaufort Road opened in 1859. Now, the Tuck family aren't in the workhouse, but they are living just outside it. So many, I think, truthfully, would say the area was a slum at that time. Now, the lady we're interested in um, is here, Caroline Tuck. This is her baptism. Um, daughter of William and Margaret. Her father is recorded on the records as a white smith or a blacksmith, so he's working with metal, um, perhaps a light-coloured metal or a darker one, uh, depending on the period and, and the record taper. Her mother's maiden name was Calaby. if anyone here is related. The couple married at St Augustine's in 1822 and we know they had at least three children, Thomas, William and then Caroline. Her brother, William, possibly died young, but she and Thomas were still at home in the 1841 census. There at least two of them. And this is the record here, blacksmith in 1841. On the day that Caroline was born, Sophia was being baptised. And she was being baptised just over there at St Peter Mancroft, so very close to where you're sitting now. Um, She was the daughter of Charles, who was a glover or a tanner, so he worked with leather, and his wife, Elizabeth. Um, Similarly to the tucks, um, she was living in quite poor housing at the time, um, this time at Shuttle Yard, um, close to the beer house um, of the same name, um, in -um Hyam Hayam Ham, however you wish to pronounce it today. Um, Caroline's age is not always consistently given, so um, there was a lot of times during the research Is this definitely the right person? Now, I think I'm on the right track, but you are of course welcome to disprove me later. (laughs) Um, So there we are, that's um, what was on the site here, um, before the car park, before the library. And the girls may well not have known each other uh, when they were youngsters, um, but their paths were about to cross. And for Caroline, it all started with a handkerchief, as far as we can tell. Um, At about the age of 14, she got tied up with a lady called Mary Ann Edwards, who was about three years her senior. She was accused of stealing a silk handkerchief owned by Mr William King, and the girls had tried to pretend that they were interested in buying a dress, but Mrs King, who was in the shop, noticed the handkerchief had gone missing when they left. The hanky was later traced to a pawnbroker's where it had been pledged by Mary <coughs> Ann. Both pleaded not guilty at the city sessions, but at 17, Mary was singled out as being the principal thief, if you like, and was given seven years transportation. Caroline received 14 days in solitary confinement. Um, Now, an interesting point for International Women's Day here is why is it Mr King's handkerchief when it's Mrs King's shop? And the reason for that um, is because the child dates from before the Women's Property Acts. So Mrs King, by marrying Mr King, essentially all of her items now belonged to her husband. In, In effect, in law, she didn't exist. Everything was her anything that she owned or earned went straight to him, so it's his handkerchief. So he is the prosecutor in that trial, not Mrs. King. For Caroline, it's significant that it was her first recorded offence. So she didn't get transportation straight away. She was given solitary for 14 days. Um, Now, this is from the newspaper there. And also, criminal register here at the bottom, Caroline Tuck, no degree of instruction, aged 14, larceny. Now by now, Sophia, the other lady, um, had also earned a first strike. Ten months before Caroline had got into trouble, she stole a pair of boots uh, from Mr Thomas Sacret of St. Clements, and she was sentenced to two calendar months in prison. The newspaper tells us again that she couldn't read or write, so this wasn't unusual uh, for that time. Both girls' <coughs> ages are going up and down a little bit. Um, so here we begin a timeline again for Sophia and Caroline in 1845. So in November 1845, Sophia's got into trouble, and then October 1846, Caroline follows. This image is an early image from inside the Guildhall. Um, It's not the courtroom that they would have been in. Um, This is a modern shot of the courtroom uh, as it's been restored. Um, This is where Caroline and Sophia would have appeared uh, before the Justices of Peace in its Victorian form. Um, Norwich is also home to the Shire Hall, and that's something that we used to get researchers coming in here quite a lot. Am I looking at the Guildhall, or am I looking at the Shire Hall? And the reason for that is because Um, Crimes in Norwich City were dealt with separately to Norfolk County. So the Shire Hall was where you went if you were a county convict, and the Guildhall is where you went as a city convict. And it was the same for the Assizes. So again, there's a a really great um, restored courtroom over at the Shire Hall as well, and you can walk through the tunnel um, Mm -hmm. from the Castle Museum. Sophia and Caroline's first days in prison weren't concurrent, but both would have ended up here. Uh, This is an early image taken from one of the books um, here in the Heritage Centre collection. By 1846, when they ended up there, it was two decades old. Um, Now, of course, the Roman Catholic Cathedral, St John, stands on that site. So, in effect, Sophia was within the same parish uh, as she'd grown up, uh, but now, of course, um, inside the jail. The prison had an infirmary, two debtors' wings, iron doors, three treadwheels, and a place of execution. Um, there were 69 sleeping cells and a schoolroom, and in 1843 there were 859 prisoners. So that's more than the workhouse example we have there. Now we move on a little bit to the 29th of June, 1847. On the other side of the world, Mary Ann Edwards sort of Handkerchief. Was only three weeks away from arriving in Van Diemen's Land. Um, back in Norwich, at the Norwich City Sessions, again at the Guildhall, two teenagers stood charged with theft, one after another. They were, of course, Sophia Richards and Caroline Tuck. Sophia, this time, was accused of stealing a brass weight and some other pieces of brass from Matthew Blythe of St Martin's Palace, and Caroline admitted to stealing three silk handkerchiefs from Mr Snowden of Bridge Street. Had she been a serial thief all the way through, or had she learnt not very well from Mary Ann Edwards? Both girls were found guilty, and both, as this time it was a second offence, were sentenced to seven years' transportation. And there they are, again in the criminal register at the bottom, 17 and 14. After the court appearance, um, both Sophia and Caroline looked to have been sent back to Norwich jail um, from July until the following October, before being transferred down to Millbank prison. Um, From 1843, it was a holding place for prisoners waiting for a voyage to Australia. Female convicts were generally held for three months while their destination was decided. Prisoners were kept in solitary confinement and restricted to silence for the first half of their sentence. Uh, The Tate Britain now stands on the site. And there's a blog on their website which describes how Henry James, a Victorian author, felt about the North Bank Penitentiary. On the outside, he said, um, lying there, sprawling over the neighborhood, with brown, bare, windowless walls, truncated pinnacles, and a character unspeakably sad and stern. And then turning to the inside, he describes high black walls whose inner face was more dreadful than the other, gray stony courts, steep, unlighted staircases, and circular shafts of cells. Some of the inmates were described as dreadful figures, scarcely female. It's alleged by some people that the term POM originated from the convicts' temporary status as prisoners of Milbank. You argue about that one. On 11th of February, 1848, both women walked down the 10 steps to embark on a ship called the Elizabeth and Henry. Uh, The buttress here is still by the river. Um, which used to stand at the head of the river steps, so you can go down to London and see that. Here they are on the ship's register. So, um, we're committed to Norfolk, Norwich City, (coughs) go sessions, Sophia and Caroline, seven years. So what happened to them when they got to Van Diemen's land? Well, firstly, both of them did get there. Um, In fact, um, If you um, read some of the evidence, it suggested as a convict on a ship to Australia, you had a better chance of arriving in a healthy condition than if you'd taken yourself to Australia because there was a ship surgeon on board. Um, So they both got there, and they started out um, as gang probation, which started in the early 1840s. Uh, Both were on the Anson probably for six months. And essentially, the answer was another boat. They went all that way and then stayed on another boat um, in Prince of Wales Bay. It was an ex-convict ship uh, that had been moored there for this purpose. Both were considered to be third-class criminals. Um, so they were separated from the worst criminals, if you like. Um, and the system was meant to be progressive. So you start with confinement and labor uh, in gangs. And gradually, the severity reduces until they're given probation and eventually made um, hireable by settlers and and received a ticket of leave and pardon before being freed. So the record on the screen here is Caroline's. So there's details here of her conviction in Norwich and the date she was convicted and how long she's gone for. Um, Her trade here is needle girl and her height is 4 foot 10. So she was very short in stature. to Sophia's entry in the convict book here. Um, We know from this that she was at Brickfield's hiring Depot, in North Hobart for a while. Um, She was punished there, there's a little note at the bottom here, for not being in bed by 9 o'clock on the evening of the 4th of April, 1849. And it it says after that, three months hard labor came her way at, at the factory Hobart, which is possibly Cascade's female factory. Which is a lot of information there. I think it's even been on who do you think you are, Glasgow's female factory. The idea was to remove women convicts from the negative influences and temptations of Hobart and protect society from what was seen as their immorality and corrupting influence. The factory was located, however, in an area of damp swampland with overcrowding, poor sanitation, and inadequate food and clothes. There was a high rate of disease and mortality among its inmates. So, like the Anson not great living conditions. Um, This is the Anson. Arrived in Hobart on the 4th of February, 1844, with 499 male convicts on board. Built near Hull in 1812, so she was ageing by then. And um, when she arrived in Hobart, all the rigging and stores were sold, and the vessel was fitted out as a probation station. There is a blog on Tasmanian families by Irene Schaefer, and it says that Mrs Bowden, the matron on the Anson, and her husband, along with staff, were brought out from England, especially for the overseeing of the convict women. The women were mainly employed in making garments, and we know at least one was a needle girl back in Norwich. Um, So they were making men's shirts, jackets, day caps, straw bonnets, shoes, stockings, things like that. They were also doing washing um, for the orphanage, the general hospital, the prison barracks, um, nursery and convict store. They went to school once a week and exercised for two hours each day. Now the Anson there was closed in 1849 and broken up and those women still there uh, were sent on perhaps to the hiring depots. Now the men who went over got involved in perhaps what was seen as the more male jobs, one of which was building the church here, um, which is still there, that's St George's Church at Battery Point in Hobart. The tower was finished in 1847, uh, not long before Caroline and Sophia got there, and both of them were to be married there within two years of arriving. Um, It was hardly surprising, really, if you think about it, women were as little as 4% of the convict population there at that time, The idea was that marriage would encourage them um, to be more moral, if you like, and they would take forward and have children, grow the settlement into a viable colony, um, and give them a chance at rehabilitation. Now, Caroline appears here, marrying John Smith, a name to cast all sorts of things (laughs) into the researcher's mind. Now, luckily, I have, I believe, been able to uh, chased them down with some new records that have been digitised relatively recently. Um, Caroline got her ticket of leave on the 4th of February 1851 and a little while after her marriage, um, although that ticket of leave was actually revoked for a little while, um, (coughs) she was allowed to proceed to Port Phillip. Um, So essentially it means she was allowed to travel from Tasmania to mainland Australia. Uh, They remained in the Victoria area, had at least eight children and settled initially in Steiglitz and later went to Ballarat. Mm. Um, and again, <coughs> I think it was Craig Revel horwood who went to Ballarat. we're yeah, so nodding gold down I here know, now for the Gold Rush. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, fantastic. Um, so yeah she went from Norwich as a convict and ended up part of the gold rush in Australia. Um, the Steiglitz itself in 2015 just had eight residents so it's much much smaller now. Mm. Now, Sophia married Henry Webster. She went all the way to the other side of the world and married a convicted highway robber who'd been sentenced for a robbery in Trumpington near Cambridge. Um, so, you know, locals. Um, he arrived a bit before her on a ship called the Tortoise, and at the time he was a groom, presumably um, for horses, perhaps. Um, this is Hobart in 1879. and um, This is where Sophia... was nearby at that time and here we believe is Sophia um, I've messaged many, many people who have this image attached to um, Family Trees on various popular websites. Um, no one has been able to tell me who actually owns the initial image, so I haven't been able to talk directly to the first person to claim that this is Sophia, but um, I think it, there's a good possibility that it is. Um, she settled um, in Kingston, just south of Battery Point, where the church was, and there she and Henry had at least nine children. Um, When they were free, they ran a farm, and she died in 1899 at the age of 71. I haven't researched their descendants in in depth. I know there are a great deal of them. Both couples had many children. Um, But since um, Secret Norwich came out, several of them have actually got in touch, which has been wonderful. What I haven't been able to do is, is get any personal stories yet about perhaps anything they remembered from their time in Norwich. But perhaps after a podcast, that will through, which would be great. Now, For both of those women, Australia was a new beginning for them. It may not have been the beginning that they wanted, um, but it was a chance of doing something different, however well they thought it turned out. Um, Unlike Jane and Anne before her, and many of their times, they were still alive. That's something that, that Jane and Anne didn't have. It seems unlikely either of them ever came back to Norfolk. The records don't tell us if they wanted to come. To Norfolk or not? Um, did they even foresee that um, they would end up out there? Uh, sometimes it's argued people wanted uh, to go over. We've got no no idea there. Were they destitute with no option but to steal those handkerchiefs? Uh, I think it's likely they weren't very well off. But again, the records don't tell us that for sure. Um, so records can tell us some things, but not everything. What we can do is piece together a bit of a story. Um, if I wrote fiction, I would fill all of those gaps in and create a lovely story for you. My role, I think, is slightly different as a researcher, and to pull those records together and, and see if I can create a coherent picture of them. Um, I'm sure there are stories out there, particularly for those last two women that have been handed down. It would be really interesting to hear those. Um, so technology is enabling that to happen, so who knows. Um, even in the 1800s, despite there being ship surgeons to watch your health, mortality at the female factories at the other end was quite high. Um, so, Sphere and Caroline, like the women before them, had few choices about how and where to live. Um, perhaps not much choice even as to whether to marry or not. They just have been preferable um, to living in an, unsatur- an unsanitary uh, probation station. And even then, not much choice necessarily. So, the question that I pose to you at the end. In 2019, how many of the women in Norwich, um, how far have they come? Um, Are there women in this city now who are not free uh, from poverty and related diseases with choices other than crime, or do we still have a way to go? And As I said earlier, perhaps in a hundred years' time, another researcher will be standing here giving you the next part of the story. Thank you very much. (laughs)